man-to-man coverage. This is the PFT PM Podcast. And now, your host, Mike Florio. July 9 edition of PFT PM rocketing through the seventh month of the year on way to the opening of training camps, preseason, regular season, etc. And we're getting closer and closer to the first preseason game. 65 preseason games in all, 256 regular season games. And damned if I know what these new helmet rules are going to mean. And I need to start, and everyone else should join me, speaking of these in terms of two helmet rules. It's not just the new helmet rule. There's one rule that we knew about, well, after it was finalized, we found out about it. It was hidden from everyone when it was merely a proposal. I'll leave it to others to speculate as to why they kept it from us. Why I'll say so. They didn't want us to know about it because they didn't want us to chime in about it because they didn't want to do anything to stop the momentum that got this thing passed without anyone really understanding what it was. That's the rule that says it's a foul to lower the helmet and initiate contact. That's the one we've known about. But then there's a separate rule. Separate knob. Why separate knob? A separate rule in the unnecessary roughness category where the language was revised. Previously, it was a foul if there was ramming, butting, or spearing with any part of the helmet in a violent or unnecessary way. Violent and unnecessary, gone. It's a foul if you ram, spear, or butt with any portion of the helmet. Period. Now, when picking over the actual language of the new rule book, and they do put the changes in red, which makes it easier to spot them. Otherwise, it would be beyond tedious. I spotted a rule, a note, added to that rule on unnecessary roughness. Note, it's not a foul for incidental helmet contact occurring during conventional blocking and tackling, whatever that means. But remember, this unnecessary roughness foul says nothing about lowering the helmet and initiating contact. You don't have to lower the helmet or initiate contact to be in violation of the unnecessary roughness requirement. Well, you know what I mean. Not requirement to engage in necessary roughness, but they, 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 know, they know who we mean. Bottom line is this. Nobody knows what this is going to do, and there was no greater piece of evidence regarding that reality than what I saw in today's Monday morning quarterback column from Jenny Francis. Six different coaches making videos that will be used by the NFL to help teach the players on what is and isn't expected. And there's still no sense of clarity from one of the coaches, Dan Quinn, talking about the defensive line video he created. No sense of clarity as to what a foul is, especially when in close quarters. And that's what everybody's concerned about. Look, I think we get the point when there's a receiver who's caught the ball and a safety is coming in, the safety can't put that helmet down and ram the helmet into the receiver. That's for the good of the receiver, and it's also for the good of the defensive player. But in the trenches, what are the rules going to be? And I remember when the rule first came out, the first rule, the one we knew about, the reaction was, oh, this isn't going to change anything in the trenches. How could it? How could it? 
What do you mean the three-point stance going away? No, it's not going anywhere. It's not going anywhere in our lifetime, Sean Payton said. And he's on the competition committee, coach of the Saints also. Better known for being coach of the Saints. But the point is, they just don't know. We thought they know. I think they'd like to think they know. We're careening toward the start of the season, and they don't know. And until someone says definitively, oh, we're not going to officiate it this way, we won't know. Now, remember it was in May, Al Riveron, the VP of officiating, said players are going to have to get their heads up. So if you're firing out of that stance, your, your helmet's already lowered. You're firing out of that stance. You're in the process of raising your helmet. If you ram butt or spear into another player while you're coming out of that stance, it may be a foul. It may not be. It may be. We don't know. How is that acceptable? How is that a way to run a billion-dollar business? When the people in charge, Rich McKay, the chairman of the competition committee, who works for the Falcons, you would think if anybody has clarity about what this rule is and isn't, these rules, let me follow my own advice here and speak in terms of two rules, these rules... If the coach of the Falcons doesn't know where the limit is and how it's going to be enforced, no one knows. And this is exactly the kind of rule that should have been implemented on an experimental basis. Requiring a vote next year of at least 24 owners to continue it. Now there's going to have to be 24 owners voting to change it or it's going to continue to be on the books. And I'm concerned that we are going to see dramatic changes. I'm concerned that the flags are going to fly. I'm concerned that the three-point stance is going to go the way of the dodo bird. That that's how dramatically the game is going to change. Prove me wrong. But all the handwriting is on the wall. From the way this was adopted to the vague manner in which these rules have been explained to this nagging sense that there is going to be significant alteration to the game of football that we've come to to know and love and follow. I mean, that's what I'm concerned about. And I get it. Ultimately, what the NFL wants is to avoid mom and dad from cringing and wincing and turning to Jimmy and saying, you're never playing football, son. I remember going to see, remember the Titans. 1999, my son was two. And in the action sequences, with the enhanced Hollywood sound, crunching, powerful hits, big screen, Dolby surround sound, or whatever the hell the, you know, the, the, the top end was at the time. Like, the, like, like, like people know. Oh, gee, oh, well, it's got Adobe XV extra high differential. Oh, well, that's the best. My wife turned to me and said, Alex is never playing football. Of course, he ended up playing. But that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to keep mom and dad from choking off the supply of youth football. So what they play on Sunday has to look safer. Now, I saw Dan Quinn in the Monday morning quarterback column make the comment about Changes trickling down. They don't care if they trickle down. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. What they care about is how mom and dad react when they see an NFL game. 
because they see that and they assume that that's what little Jimmy's going to play. That it's going to be as violent. The reality is the little kids, you know, they talk about getting rid of youth football. The little kids aren't strong enough to really hurt each other. It's not until you're about, I don't know, 15, 16, where you're big enough and strong enough to really hurt each other. I, I don't want to overly generalize. I don't know how big and strong 12 and 13 year olds are now. But the little kids, the thing that bothers me the most about really young kids playing is the way their coaches talk to them. It's like, you know, let's not strip their innocence away any more quickly than society already strips it away. I remember we played a lot of tackle football, sandlot version. And throughout high school, we played all the time. And nobody ever seriously got hurt. Then we went to college and like the first extended weekend thanksgiving guy separates a shoulder guy tears an acl guys got concussions it's craziness so i think there is a certain amount of physical force that the bodies need to be able to generate to create the kind of injuries but that's not what the nfl is worried about they're worried about what we see and we worry about people becoming convinced that the sport is inherently dangerous jay glazer tells the story he's got that gym out in california the mma gym and moms bring their kids there saying i'm looking for something safer than football how about this oh yeah yeah it's safer than football i watched the ufc card the other night except for the one fight where they didn't hit each other it's brutal while the guy is knocked out falling down he gets hit three more times in the head while he's unconscious Pow, pow, hammer fist, pow, pow, and the referee flies in and stops it. Yeah, that's not brutal. Guys are bleeding so much. This is a dated reference, but it reminds me when I see some of these guys spouting blood, it's like when Jed shot into the ground in Kentucky and the crude oil came bubbling up. It's brutal, it's disgusting, but it's not followed with the same zeal that people follow the NFL. And you don't have those same concerns. And MDS made this point back in March. People take their kids to karate classes. They don't think their kids are going to get kicked in the face. And then they dial up UFC and they watch adults kick each other in the face. See, they understand the disconnect. With football, they don't. So that's the thinking. The NFL is trying to make the game safer. Not for humanitarian reasons. For their own reasons. If they cared about the players, they would have made the changes a hell of a lot earlier than October of 2009. They got hauled to Capitol Hill for a hearing, and it was clear. And people say, oh, doesn't don't Congress have better things to do than worry about football? Well, Congress has a way of letting people know that they have concerns about something that has significant public interest. You've got a problem. You either clean it up on your own or we'll clean it up for you. And I guarantee you, you won't like the way we clean it up. So that forced the NFL to act. And that came the the lawsuits. And, and then came the concerns about the reduced participation. And that's what this is ultimately about. But none of this was driven by humanitarian concerns. They view those guys as robots. They get chewed up and spat out. They don't care about health and safety. They care about what a perception of a lack of health and safety can do to them. And, and I mean, look, they, I'm not saying, well, am I saying they're lying? I don't know. Maybe they've convinced themselves they care because it's in their best interest to care. They don't care about the individuals. Come on. 
I mean, if we know one thing about the NFL, we know that. The players are robots, and there's an endless supply of robots. Well, they hope there is. They make changes to the game from a health and safety standpoint to ensure that there'll be an endless supply of robots. That's true. People at the league office may not like it, but it's true. I don't like what they're doing to the game, though. And I don't like this vague sense as to what these two new helmet rules will or won't be. I don't like that. I don't like going into a season where it feels like it's all experimental and unknown. That's not the way a billion-dollar business should be run, especially in the early days of gambling, legalized gambling. That's not the way you introduce gambling, sea to shining sea. Oh, by the way, we have these new rules that may or may not give up 15-yard chunks of field position at a moment's notice in an erratic and unpredictable and ambiguous way. Enjoy your experience wagering on football. All right, that's all I'm going to say about that. And people, oh, why are you so negative? Oh, you're so negative. I'm t- Look, I'm trying to be realistic here. And all the alarms are going off. I would love to be wrong about this. I have a feeling I'm not. Oh, from the moment they, and I don't, I, I remember I had Troy Vincent on the show, I don't know, it was back in May, right after the meetings then, and I tried to ask him a question about why did this thing kind of get slipped through the five hole? And I, I don't, I don't know if he even understood what my point was, but from the, from the get-go, 10 proposals made by the competition committee, submitted to the media, opportunity to study them and ask questions about them. Proposal 11. Never shows up. Gets put on the table at the meetings, and the next thing you know, the rule's put in place. It would have been nice to be able to talk to somebody. And we know why, because they don't know. They didn't know. See, there, there are forces in the game somewhere that have been pushing this and pushing this and pushing this. And the people who have been pushing this in shadowy, secret fashion, those are the ones I'm worried about. Those are the ones who I think are determined to see dramatic changes to the game. And I'm sure they have a reason for it, but they know that these dramatic changes are not going to be something that people welcome in the front door. They're going to have to be jammed through the back door, and that's exactly what's going on. And, and number one, I don't like that approach. I think it's dishonest. Number two, I think it tells us we should be paying attention to where this ball is moving. Dramatic change is coming. And the NFL needs to worry about the one big reality, the potential for a fall competitor, a league that says, you know what, NFL, you've changed this game beyond recognition. We're going to play football the way it used to be played. And I'll tell you what, if I had a couple billion laying around, they'd have to worry about me doing that. I still would have to wrestle with the ethical dilemma Because even though everyone now knows the risks, right, do you financially profit from what we know is going to injure over the long term? I mean, they'll sign anything. They'll sign the waiver. They'll do whatever. Everybody knows now. No one can say they don't know the risks. And I haven't had a chance to really study this, but I saw on MDS's Twitter page before I started, researchers are finding CTE in the brains of people who never even played contact sports, never even had any concussions. It just shows you how early on we are in this process of understanding the link between football and anything that will happen to you later in life, different from what was going to happen to you anyway. So, 
That's my concern. That we're going to change the game to the point where the NFL is finally going to face a serious in-season competitor for the first time since the AFL in the 1960s. I don't know. Maybe that'll maybe be good. Maybe this is the only way the NFL swings it back the other way. Anyway, sorry to spend so much time on that. Not much else going on in the NFL. The Panther sale has closed. David Tepper in. Tina Becker, who'd been running the team with Jerry Richardson on the sidelines, out. She resigns. Tepper pays $2 billion plus, $2.275 billion for the team. And But remember, the Supreme Court decision comes down legalizing gambling on a state-by-state basis. And like the next day, it's announced that there's a deal for David Tepper to buy the Panthers. I just wonder how much more the team would be worth, will be worth, once this really percolates as it relates to gambling and how much more money these teams will be worth. David Tepper, who is going to own this team exclusively, he doesn't have minority partners. He's got the full equity, and he can do with it what he wants. You know, if the... If this does quadruple the way that I think, was it double or quadruple? I can't remember. Mark Cuban had this over the top. Even if it just doubles, let's just say it doubles. David Tepper could sell off 50% of the team and make his $2.275 billion back and keep the other half of the team and run it. Five, 10 years from now, who knows? Great investment. By Tepper, And it helped that he was already in the club, pre-approved because he was a minority owner of the Steelers. That's the way to go. If you want to own a football team, you get somebody to sell you a slice because then they do all of that vetting of you in advance. And it makes it a hell of a lot easier and a hell of a lot more efficient once you're kind of in the club to officially and fully get in the club. So David Tepper now officially in the club. The last time a former Steelers minority owner became a majority owner of another team. Didn't work out so well. Jimmy Haslam and the Browns. We'll see if it works out better for David Tepper and the Carolina Panthers. Again, not a whole lot else going on. We haven't talked about the Steve Keim DUI arrest. The one thing that we don't know, that we inevitably will know, is the blood alcohol concentration that was detected. And I guess there's a chance that Kime refused to submit. I don't know if you can refuse to submit in Arizona. Some states you can refuse to submit. We just don't know. That hasn't come out. And I've tried to poke around and find out and um, I I haven't gotten anywhere. And I mean, I don't. How do I properly say this? I just have a feeling that they don't want us to know yet. I have a feeling it's not. It's not going to help the situation. Just a feeling. Just a feeling. We don't know yet what the number is. But that's what we need to keep an eye on.
Because I think the higher the BAC, the more likely there'll be a significant punishment of Steve Kahn by the Cardinals or by the NFL. And that's the one thing about this that is kind of frustrating. When a player gets a DUI, now we know two-game suspension. Period. Two games. With others, we just don't know. And there have been multiple assistant coaches who haven't been suspended at all. Front office guys seem to be more likely to get suspended. Matt Russell with the Broncos. Remember he plowed into a police cruiser? He was suspended 60 days. And then he had seven months in jail and he continued to work for the Broncos while on work release. Tom Heckert while with the Broncos, 30 days. Tom Lawand while he was with the Lions, 30 days, reduced to 21. Jim Irsay had a driving while impaired. And he got a six-game suspension and a $500,000 fine. And remember at the time, the argument was made by somebody, probably me, that he should lose six weeks, six games of revenue. Because if you're a player and you get suspended six games, what happens to you? You lose six game checks. So an accountant should figure out what the net revenue is. For the Indianapolis Colts, for six games, for those six games, based upon the full season, how they perform, figure out the net, and you take that away from Jim Irsay. Roger Goodell was asked about that at the time. He said he didn't have the power to do it. And you know what? I didn't know this then because I hadn't studied the Constitution and bylaws. That's wrong. That's incorrect. Because there are circumstances where the commissioner can go beyond the maximum fine of $500,000. He would have to go to the owners, though. He'd have to go to the Management Council Executive Committee and recommend that they consider stronger penalties. So he could have done it. I mean, look at what they did to Jerry Richardson. $2.75 million fine. They can do more if they want to. Now, they haven't given us a whole lot of details as to how they came to that number or what Jerry Richardson did. But clearly, if you want to find somebody more than five hundred grand, you can. So, the point is, there is a double standard. And there just is. We'll see what happens with Steve Kime. Maybe he doesn't get suspended at all. Maybe it just kind of disappears. It all depends, I think, well, not all, but largely depends on what the the BAC reading ended up being. That's probably everything worth talking about today. You can check profootballtalk.com for the rest of the stories that we've posted. Until training camp gets going, it's a challenge every day to come up with content. It is. But we've managed to do it. I think a lot of newspapers out there have quotes that they harvested during the OTAs and they turn them into stories now. And thank God for that because that gives us something we can... We can summarize and characterize and bring to you. And also, it runs a link back to that newspaper's website. And even though people say, oh, you're just aggregating, hey, you're aggregating. Well, we, we, we try to add something to it. We try to add our spin on it. And it does publicize the work of the person whose article otherwise may not be noticed by a throng of football fans who continue to check PFT every day. At Burn Unit has a question. Would you consider opening a sports bar and grill modeled after your barn and call it the PFT Barn? Sounds catchy. Mike Likes Dirt says, I'd stop by en route to Pittsburgh from North Carolina for sure. Yeah, here's the thing. Opening in a restaurant... Oh, hey, this would be a great idea. Yeah, it's a great idea with your money, not mine. 
It's a great idea with your time, not mine. It's a major undertaking, fraught with financial peril. And if you don't know what the hell you're doing, you're far more likely to fail. No thank you. Would it be great to have a place where I could go and say, hey, this is my restaurant. What do you think of this? I got my own restaurant. Nah, I'd rather buy I'd rather buy something that that keeps its value. Or at least doesn't lose its value quite as quickly and doesn't suck more money away and ultimately fail. I hate to be pessimistic about it, but restaurants typically fail. It's not worth it. When you got something else that's making money and has been making money for 17 years, I'll stick with that. We're not ready. We're not ready to to open a restaurant. Although I, I still continue to have like, eh, it'll never happen. The a PFT PM posse kind of get together where you know you charge a little money and you feed everybody and you work it out and you make a little you make a little profit on. Yeah, it's not worth it. N.W. Jaker will Philip Rivers end his career on a Super Bowl contender, not the Chargers. I think he stays with the Chargers. He just seems like the kind of guy who's not going to move on. And I don't think the Chargers are going to move him on until they know he's done. That's just my gut feeling. And I don't think they are a Super Bowl contender this year. they got to prove it to me. I was surprised that when the odds came out of the likelihood to make it to the playoffs, that the Chargers had the third lowest odds in the AFC. That was kind of surprising. There isn't a whole lot of love for the Chiefs from Las Vegas. But I don't know how I feel about the Chargers. They just, they, they just, too many guys get injured. At some point, you have to like completely revamp your strength and conditioning staff. Because I see every Sunday, Rodney Harrison has a skill where he can spot, when he's watching nine football games, he can spot the potentially serious knee injury. And he takes his right hand, open palm, and he swings his hand toward me and slaps me in the chest. Oh, look at that. And after I come to, I say, look at what? And he says, the right there, center, middle, look at that screen. And you can see, like, the leg gets all pretzeled up. And, like, nine times out of ten, the guy jumps up and just runs off the field. Anytime you see this chronic collection of knee injuries, of different kinds of injuries, they're, they're, just, they're, they're doing something wrong to get the guys ready to withstand that pounding and get up. Now, some of it's unavoidable. But I tell you, all the time, we see guys where it's like, that guy's done. And he's fine. He doesn't even leave the game. So I'd be concerned about that if I were the Chargers. And I'd be concerned. I don't know. Look, the AFC West, any team can win it. Any team can be in fourth. Any team can be in second or third. That's the most fascinating division for me because I just don't know how it's going to shake out. I'm not looking forward to picking a winner in the AFC West. Sean Alvashire asks, do you think the NFL should have prison mics speak to rookies before they enter the NFL? You know, they used to do that rookie symposium where they took all of the drafted rookies to Canton, Ohio, to the Hall of Fame, and they had a multi-day program, and they had Chris Carter say, get a fall guy. (laughs) I don't know why they stopped doing it. Maybe that was one of the reasons they stopped doing it. But see, the undrafted players never got the benefit of it. I think now they do it team by team, And I think the undrafted guys are part of it. Prison Mike could make the rounds. Part of the problem is when you make young guys sit there and listen for two or three days, how much of it really does stick? Right? 10% if you're lucky? I don't know. And 
some guys just think it's not going to be me. That's the great defect in our DNA. We think bad things happen to other people, not to us. So I, I don't know that Prison Mike, with his warnings about gruel sandwiches and the Dementors, I don't know that that's really going to make much of a difference. At Mike Likes Dirt. Although I will say this. I will say this. There has been a dramatic decrease in player incidents. And I, it's, as, as unfair as the processes are, as haphazard as the investigations go, the NFL clamping down via the personal conduct policy has seemed to be successful, has seemed to get results, has seemed to work. I think that's more valuable than anything they say to guys who are entering the NFL when they're forced to sit and listen for two or three days. Mike likes dirt. Would you rather see Panthers versus Seahawks, Saints, or Falcons this year? Hashtag Christmas shopping early. I guess those are three home game options. I would go for a divisional game. Well, here's the thing, right? If you're a Panthers fan, do you want to go to a game where you feel like there's a greater likelihood you're going to be satisfied by the outcome? If that's the case, then maybe maybe the Seahawks? The Panthers have always played the Seahawks tough, even when the Seahawks were regarded to be really good. See, a divisional team, I worry about them coming in and and winning the game. I don't know. It also depends upon which star players do you want to see. they got star players on all these teams. I don't know. Any of them should be good. At the Impact 99, if I set the bar at week four for Jameis Winston to start, you take the over, under, or push. Well, I ain't taking the under for week four to for Jameis Winston to start because um, I he's not going to be available until week four. So, it's either push or over. And here's the thing to keep in mind. Week three, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers have a home game on a Monday night against the Pittsburgh Steelers. So, Jameis Winston can't return until the next day. That's Tuesday. The following Sunday, they play the Bears. The following weekend, they're off. If Ryan Fitzpatrick plays well enough the first three games, why not just let it ride? Why not just let it finish? Let him play week four and have Jameis Winston ready to go coming out of the bye week when they play the Atlanta Falcons. So, I, th- I think I'll... T- I'm tempted to take the over. I, I, I'm, I'm tempted to take the over. At Rocco Brown, I see you have a Les Paul, a Telecaster, and another guitar I couldn't identify in the barn. Do you play, and if so, which is your favorite? I play, but not very well. And I play via, primarily, the Rocksmith video game, which is like Guitar Hero, but you use a real guitar. And even though I've gotten really good at a lot of the songs, and there are like 30 or 40 songs I've mastered, that still doesn't mean I can go pick up and play with a, with a band. It's a different experience altogether. And I've learned some things, and they, different songs that they stick, and you can play it, and the power chords, and the how to, how to make that chunky sound, and different tricks that, that I never learned. I took guitar lessons when I was a kid from some hillbilly that taught me bluegrass type stuff and how to read notes and do chords and it was all that that very clean sound that picking you know johnny cash style and I, it's like i i, I want i i i i want to play like ace freely not like johnny cash and of course i was young and i was taught to always defer to your elders and i wasn't nearly the asshole then that i am now 
but I should have said, hey, mister, I, I want to play like Kiss plays. And, you know, I'm just a dumb kid, right? Oh, well, my mom found a place where I take lessons, so I go take lessons. I cart that big giant case two and a half blocks, take the bus into town every Saturday morning, take my half-hour guitar lesson, wait for the bus, head home, and practice some. But I've learned a lot with this Rocksmith deal. The Telecaster's a little easier to play. It's a little easier to move around the neck. The Les Paul's heavy. It's just a little harder to manipulate. It makes different sound. It's got a different quality to it, but... I don't know enough about guitars. What else? Do, I've got a, uh, I've got a a, a, a a Les Paul shaped thing that I got for a couple hundred bucks when I first started screwing around with it. That's just kind of a piece of crap. That's up at the house. Somebody brought over one of the regulars at the barn, brought over a guitar that's signed by the group Alabama from their farewell tour. Although they're still touring, you know, every group does a farewell tour five or six times to get people to show up. So it's from one of their farewell tours, and it's a signed Alabama guitar, and I've never played that one. That's just there for show. There's a bass down there as well, and tucked behind the Telecaster is a little Gretsch acoustic guitar that if I've had a few drinks, maybe I'll screw around with. On the other side of the wall is the electric guitar that I got when I was a kid. It's a, it's called the Paul. It's a very scaled-down, cheap version of a Les Paul with just kind of like plain wood that doesn't have a special finish and the the treble bass or what is it treble rhythm switch it's down near the control knobs instead of up at the top because it's cheaper to put it down there than up at the top just little things like that that made it more affordable but i've had that thing 40 years i have no idea what it's worth and i'm not interested in selling it but i've had that guitar 40 years and it still works but it it, it doesn't work as well as as the telecaster or the, the les paul Thank you for a question unrelated to football at a time when things are kind of slow. Matt and Beantown, with roster cuts now going straight from 90 to 53, do you see teams going after other teams' cut players to fill up practice spots as opposed to just filling those seven spots from within? Could we see some drama like the post-draft UFA signings? They've already done this a year or two. I still think that that... You know, if you're going to go after somebody who was cut by another team, you're more likely to add them to your roster because for your practice squad, you I think you want guys that, that have been there, who know the system. I don't think you're just going to go out and sign a low-level guy who was cut from another team and who has practice squad eligibility. If, if I've got a guy who's been with me all through the offseason training camp and the preseason and he's cut, I'm more likely to bring him back on the practice squad than sign somebody else who has practice squad eligibility that I don't really know. Unless, like, you've had coaches who move around. Hey, I know this guy. Let's bring this guy in. The big thing to watch is that flood, that rush of free agent signings and waiver claims. Because, you know, all the time when the when the rosters are set, that Saturday of Labor Day weekend, and, you know, hey, congratulations, you made the 53-man roster, and then the next day the guy gets cut because when you make five or six waiver claims, you got to clear out five or six guys who made it. So I don't see it being a big deal from that perspective. I, I it just creates it creates more activity, and and I, I look at it this way. I look at it this way. When you make all those roster moves, there's still only that small handful of guys who really have a chance to go anywhere else. A lot of the guys are just going to wash out. I mean, think about that: 37 times 32. It's just over for them. 
It's over. It's done. And that's that's where the players who are going to play in the AAF and the XFL are going to come from. At Fittison Kane, despite Mark Garrigus bounce checks, you seem confident in his case against the NFL. Have you heard something or just a hunch? Well, I don't I I, I don't know what I've heard that's different from what's out there. And it's not really a hunch. It's just an understanding of what collusion is and what collusion isn't. And what it takes to run afoul of the requirement that teams not collude. you got 32 different businesses that are not allowed to make coordinated decisions. And people think that means that they need evidence of some secret meeting involving all 32 teams. No. The league office, I think, can be the conduit for the collusion. If the league office is sending the message as to what's good and bad for business, if they're sending that message to all 32 teams from that central hub in New York City and no one signs Colin Kaepernick and email messages, text messages, etc. passed around by people who are not thinking there's ever going to be a viable collusion case and all that evidence comes to light, I think maybe you can piece something together. If the arbitrator buys the idea that the collusion can come from the league office being the conduit to send the message out to all the teams, and if all the teams act accordingly, that's collusion. That's collusion. I mean, the NFL, just by the very way that it operates, has a certain amount of inherent collusion or antitrust violations because the league office tells teams what to do. Think about that. You have 32 different businesses, and you have one central location that tells teams what to do. The one message that the league should be sending to the 32 teams is, hey, you're independent businesses. Do whatever the hell you want. Now, there's a certain amount of collusion that is allowed because, and, and, and this is where it gets complicated. I'm going to try to keep it simple. Because the NFL's players... Because the NFL has a multi-employer bargaining unit where you've got 32 different businesses and they have a joint workforce that is all subject to one collective bargaining agreement, they get away with a lot of what would be an antitrust violation without a CBA. And this is why when there's a lockout, what the union does right away is shut down. You take away that union protection and you have 32 businesses who have rules. And in the case of the 2011 lockout, the rule was none of you guys can show up and work. You take away that union, you can't lock those employees out. It's an antitrust violation. And that's why if the players had been willing to go for a full year without revenue, without game checks, they could have won all the money that they would have made collectively in 2011 times three. Because that's one of the deterrents, societal deterrents of antitrust violations. If you have damages, you get treble damages. You get times three. And that's a point I made over the weekend. Todd Gurley can say all he wants that the players need a lockout to get guaranteed contracts. Lockout, strike, whatever. If they're not willing to forego game checks, it's never going to really work to the level that it could. There's never going to be equal footing because the owners will take the work stoppage and the players won't. If there's a strike, the owners will go out and get replacement players. And that's why the one thing the players have to be ready to do, if they really want to make this work, stage their own games. I mentioned that to Todd Gurley when I interviewed him over the weekend. He sounded intrigued by that. And it also, look, I also got the impression he hasn't really thought this through. 
And that's fine. He's, he's, look, he's not an economist or expert in labor relations. He's, he's a football player. It's one thing to just throw out lockout. It's another thing to understand what a lockout means. And the first thing it means for Todd Gurley and everyone else, you better be ready to not get paid. And if there would be another lockout, and they could convince the players to go a full year without getting paid. That lawsuit was doing pretty well. The lawsuit that was filed, the antitrust lawsuit, that was doing pretty well. Remember, for a while they got an, an injunction stopping the lockout, preliminary injunction. It ended up failing. But you take the case all the way through to the end. If the finding is it's illegal to lock these guys out once the union has shut down, then the argument is a full season of football was lost. That was money lost by these players. If it's an illegal lockout, they get all that money times three. At Apple one, two, three, Apple eleven, which three people dead or alive would you like to have over for dinner? I I I don't I don't know. I don't know. I've never really thought about it. Three because here's the thing. If if it were three people that I just like would be so in awe of, it wouldn't be a very interesting dinner. And I would want to select the three based upon how the three of them would interact, right? This isn't just give me the top three people you'd like to have over at your house for dinner. This is give me the top three people that you'd like to put in a room and watch them go. Watch how they interact, right? Wouldn't that be great? Because if it's three people that you're just fully in awe of, you just gonna be like, okay. Would 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 you would you like would you would, would, would you would you like some more bread? So, that's not as easy of a question as people think it is, because number one, you would be freaked out, and you would be rendered ineffective by the circumstance. And number two, how are those three people going to get along? And maybe that's how you make that decision. Assume that you are not going to be a factor in the conversation. So, which three people do you want to see in that setting, mixing it up? That's a different analysis altogether. At Andrew Yeh, I keep reading that Le'Veon Bell and the Steelers have a deadline for a contract extension. Are players not allowed to sign a contract extension when they are on the franchise tag after a certain date? If not, what's the rationale behind that? Yes, Andrew, there is a prohibition. As of July 15, when July 15 is a weekday, if it's a weekend, it's the next Monday. Last year it was Monday the 17th. This year it's Monday the 16th because both years the 15th landed on a weekend. 4 p.m. Eastern on that Monday or weekday if the 15th is a weekday. That's when the window closes on doing a multi-year deal. I don't know what the rationale is. I really don't. And it used to be that there was a limited window to do a long-term deal, and then there was a moratorium until July 15 to do a long-term deal. So this period now that we're in where you could do a long-term deal, it used to be you couldn't. It made no sense. I don't know why they do it. I should find out. But there is a prohibition. There is an ending date, and it goes from July 16 until the end of the regular season. That was one of the points I made on behalf of Le'Veon Bell last year, that... If he really wanted to squeeze the Steelers, if he really wanted to apply leverage, he should have gone to them after the regular season ended and said, okay, you got two weeks to sign me to a new contract. And if you don't, I'm not showing up for the playoff game.
I'm not taking on this incremental risk of serious injury for what we get paid to play in a divisional round game. It's not worth it. Now, people would have lost their damn minds. But there's a way to sell this. There's a way to sell this if you're a player. And you can get some people on your side. Right? Whatever the, the, the divisional game check is, it's, it's peanuts in comparison to what you regularly make. I'm going to go out there in a high-stakes game, higher intensity, bigger hits. I'm going to expose my body to this as a running back when I'm on the brink of a $14.5 million one-year contract. No, thank you. Give me my contract now. And, and I, I remember getting the sense that he was trying to maybe rattle the cage a little bit to get that long-term deal. And, and I wrote some things that were supportive of him. He didn't seem to be appreciative of that. See, I don't think any player wants to be painted with that brush. I think you quickly lose the fans. This gets back to that dichotomy where owners can make business decisions all they want and they get applauded. Players make business decisions like that and they're called selfish and greedy. How dare you? How dare you? What's wrong with you that you wouldn't want to actually play football in January? This is what players live for. No, they don't live for it. They live to maximize their revenue while they can. So between Le'Veon Bell, Demarcus Lawrence, LaMarcus Joyner, and Ziggy Ansah, they got until next Monday, 4 p.m. Eastern, to do long-term deals. If they don't, the window closes until the end of the regular season. And for Bell, for Bell, here's the bottom line. They're not going to tag him next year. So if they don't do a long-term deal before the end of this period... He has to ask himself, do I show up for training camp in the preseason? Because the more prepared he is to have a big 2018, the better he sets the table for himself come 2019, whether the Steelers give in and give him the long-term deal or he goes to the open market and somebody just pays him a shitload of money because he's now, number one, effective. Number two, a name that will draw fans, that will generate interest. Look at what the 49ers paid Jarek McKinnon this year what would they have paid Le'Veon Bell if he was available what would another team pay Le'Veon Bell if he's available next year see the Steelers have kept him twice from finding out next year he's most likely going to find out unless they do that long-term deal I should probably wrap this up let me answer a couple more of these at the real Forno the Alliance for American Football announced that they will have three combine-like events in August wouldn't it be smarter for them to wait on those until after final cuts um, yeah, but you know what? Most of those guys have already gone through a, a combine. I think this is the way they cast a broad net and maybe bring in some guys who are available, who aren't with teams. Maybe they're people who never got invited to a combine, never got drafted, never really had a chance. Maybe they find some diamonds in the rough that way. At Apple 1, 2, 3, Apple 11, if one group was great, but the other group was mediocre, would you rather have great plays or great players? I'm confused. I want great players. I always want great players. Great players can take a crappy play and and make it a great play. At the real Forno, I remember seeing something you posted on PFT that if players rat on other players, they can get their suspension reduced. Can you elaborate more on that? Yeah, I mean this is fairly simple. And I tripped over it last week looking through the PED policy after the Julian Edelman suspension was finalized. And it's right there. I just I I saw it, I read it, and I thought, boy, this is odd. And it and, and I can find it here real quick. Let's see. We will multitask. I am pulling up ProFootballTalk.com. 
picking up another click. Of course, it's moving slowly because my Wi-Fi sucks. PED policy. Let's do PED policy. The search box is very good. PED policy. It's trying to autocorrect. Let's try this again. PED policy Edelman. Uh, Edelman. Got to spell Edelman right. That's the key. The search box works very well if, if you type in the, the language the right way. This is the, the sentence. The NFL Management Council may, prior to the conclusion of a player's appeal, reduce the length of the suspension and corresponding bonus forfeiture by up to 50% when the player has provided full and complete assistance, including hearing testimony if required, to the Management Council, which results in the finding of an additional violation of the policy by another player, coach, trainer, or other person subject to this policy. That means if you snitch, you possibly will get your suspension cut in half. It could be cut in half. Now, I don't know of anyone ever doing it. And, I mean, the thing is, it would be fairly obvious because the standard PED policy suspension is four games. So, if all of a sudden you're suspended two games, then, you know, somebody will know that something was up. It's just odd that that's in there. Why would you incentivize snitching? Why would you? It's just odd. It just, it, it just shows that there's some periodic self-awareness when it comes to the NFL. All right. I probably should wrap it up. A lot of other questions here. Ask them tomorrow. We'll do it again tomorrow. And uh, thanks for some of your time. PFT Live returns two weeks from today on radio, three weeks from today on TV. And uh, we'll continue to post and post and post. We will continue to find things about which to post. And uh, we'll be back again tomorrow with another PFT PM. Have a great day. You can find the PFTPM podcast on Art19, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, and you will, subscribe for automatic downloads. Leave a rating and review. That'll help new listeners find our show and push us up the charts. Search PFTPM for your evening update from Pro Football Talk.